Hello, and welcome to Office Hours by People Design. My name is Kevin Boodleman, President of People Design. I'm here with my partner and Strategy Director of People Design, Jake Himmelsbach. Office Hours is a time we've set aside to discuss ideas we've been thinking about at People Design and issues that we experience firsthand with our customers. Earlier this month, we published a short piece on our blog and put it on LinkedIn called Sparking Growth. Sparking Growth is this idea that uh, we've been discussing uh, and have experienced, as I mentioned, with different clients um, about how starting a company is very different than growing a company. Uh, the idea being that when companies start out, they're in a very fragile state and there is kind of sparks and we've used the, we use the metaphor of a spark and a flame in the article, the idea of sparking innovation and how moving from a, a fragile spark into a stable flame takes a, a, a shift in terms of the, the business owners and the founders and, and uh, moving from kind of this transition of, of just the, the spark of an idea to a, to a more mature company um, is something that any successful enterprise has lived through and that the founders have either uh, learned how to adapt to that shift or they've hired a good team with different skills or they maybe have even moved on. And that, um, you know, truly this is something that we have, we have seen in various states and in our uh, clients over the last 20 years of being in business. And uh, separately, you know, we in our company, we talk a lot about the idea of uh, balancing strategic focus and organizational alignment. And we have actually overlapped that idea onto this idea of startups and, and growing companies. Um, some of you may be familiar with the book that was published um, probably more than 10 years ago now called Jumping the S-Curve, written by two guys from Accenture, uh, Paul Nunez and Tim Breen. And the idea is that, you know, companies, as they go through growth cycles, they kind of move from startup to a growth period to maturity and decline until they were able to, in some ways, reinvent themselves and go through their next growth curve. Um, we've kind of aligned these ideas of uh, focus and alignment to parts of the curve. And our, our feeling is that at the points of a startup and pivoting at sort of at the bottom and the top of the S curve, organizations need more focus. And when they're in the growth period, they need greater alignment. Um, truly, it's one of these things where we've seen in a lot of organizations when they're, when they are, uh, when they've started, the actual creative spark can sometimes almost become kind of an Achilles heel uh, to that organization. <clears throat> and one of the reasons why uh, I enjoy uh, publishing these pieces out here and even having discussions like this one here today is the idea that, you know, we get some feedback and we continue to sharpen and improve our thinking. Um, and so uh, one of my, uh, uh, my associates had actually uh, commented on our post on LinkedIn and, and pointed out how there is a, uh, an organization called the uh, Adidas uh, Institute where um, the strategist there has identified something he calls the founder's trap. And so that's one way to think about this uh, challenge. Um, and uh, when I, I did a little bit of digging there and they, they in, in the, the founder's trap ideas is sort of seen as a 
almost like a disease by by organizations when they're when they are sometimes limited by the original uh, people who started the company and and a lot of it has to do with you know a fear of losing control um letting others lead uh releasing equity think thinking think about things like a succession plan um the willingness to get out of the the spotlight those kinds of things and they identify various uh opportunities to you know, inviting leaders to adapt, uh, to become storytellers, fortune tellers, to become more self-aware, that kind of thing. It's a really interesting kind of analog analogy to what we were writing about in, in uh, the article. Uh, and, uh, but in fact, you know, we, we actually feel like, you know, this idea of flopping between uh, focus and alignment or from startup and growth to maturity um, in some ways, focus and alignment are two sides of a coin from our standpoint, and most organizations are not homogenous. Any large organization often has parts of the organization that are kind of in startup mode and others that are kind of in growth mode. Um, and from our perspective, it's just a way to think about uh, where to start. Um, there are two sides of a coin. There's kind of a symbiotic relationship between focus and alignment from our standpoint. Um, but a lot of it has to do with kind of where the, where the felt pain is. Uh, so. I'm, I'll just pause there for a moment. We have a few people on, on the line and um, I encourage anyone to jump in and ask questions if you like. Um, I also have Jake with me and we may just talk through some of these things our, ourselves if, if no one uh, is brave enough to speak up or has a question for us. Yeah, so thank you, Kevin. Uh, hey guys, this is Jake uh, talking here. You know, um, one of the things that, that jumped out as I was going through this, this article was just the the idea of uh, you know leadership and growth, uh, individuals and organizations. You know, so much of this seems like it's about individual people, but also the parallels and I guess the metaphors you could say and how that relates to, to business. Um, you know, I guess I, you know even just kind of backing up a little bit further, Kevin. I was curious to know a little bit more about what what do you think caused you to write this article, or what was the what was the insight or the catalyst for um, taking some time to, to dive a little bit deeper into this. Well, I think, you know, we've, we've dealt with a lot of different kinds of organizations at different sizes over the years. And, uh, it's a common scenario where, uh, you know, when we are brought in to focus on a business problem or a brand problem or a service problem that, uh, our clients are, you know, so in a situation where companies that have been around for a while but are kind of starting to stall out and have had a great startup and have had a great success, but are trying to sort out what the next phase of the business is. And if I compared how those kinds of organizations work and how they think to other clients we've had that are in a completely different mode, that are either in growth mode or um, are actually being run by uh, professional managers who were not the founders, yeah. They have a very, very different kind of outlook and, and sort of sense of priority and what to do. And so some, and, and, but by the same token, we've seen sometimes some of those very mature organizations also struggling with trying to pivot back to becoming, uh, to be less focused on, let's say, operational excellence and, and sort of alignment and more focused on, and, and, they, and they need to focus, uh, refocus themselves on something that's more relevant to their customers. So I guess our sense of sort of, uh, process around focus and alignment started to have a kind of analogy with um, these different stages in the growth cycle 
And so trying to articulate a point of view, I guess, and starting yeah. to see that kind of happen, I guess is sort of what led. To so, that. so that's interesting too, because one of the things uh, that the article talks about is, and as you were just mentioning, um, focus is needed for both startups and mature companies, where alignment is really about growth. I was curious to get your thoughts on, do you feel like uh, the focus is different between a startup and a mature company? Or do you think that the emphasis is different? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I think that the, I think the basics are the same. Like the starting place is the same. They're, in both cases, you're looking for growth opportunities. So, you know, the, the idea of focus from our standpoint often is trying to identify unmet needs in the marketplace, you know, trying to understand better the customer, how they think, how they make decisions. But ultimately, a startup can start with a blank piece of paper and, you know, create a business, a new business model uh, based on kind of their perception of what's what the opportunity might, might be, whereas it's common where a mature company I mean, unless they plan to completely start over, but that is uncommon. They're usually dealing with, you know, the pros and cons of their past success. So yeah. they're so they're building on. They're yeah. either building on another business unit or a new product or a new service or, uh, re or some level of reinvention. Is it, that's that that's cool. That what um, as you're talking there, it kind of made me think about how um, focus, as you're describing it, really is about getting centered on the customer, but it makes me think about alignment in the sense that I wonder if, you know, focus for a startup and a mature company is really, like you're saying, an emphasis on the customer, but is alignment really about the emphasis on the internal organization? And I was, yeah, I was reading an article earlier um, about the, they were comparing Steve Jobs to Tim Cook. And it was interesting because they were kind of saying who was the better CEO of Apple and they both had strengths and weaknesses. And, what jumped out to me as I was reflecting on this article and reading that was the idea that Steve Jobs really did create that spark. He was very much focused on, you know, game-changing products, uh, very aggressive, uh, but he was also very hard. He was notoriously hard to work for. Yeah. Um, with that spark also comes a lack of stability sometimes. Mm -hmm. But then Tim Cook, what they were kind of praising him on was this notion that Yes, there's less of a spark, but what he's really bringing to Apple is stability and operational excellence. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is a change in, um, in mindset in terms of you know, focus? Is that predominantly about the customer and alignment in the, in the aspects or in the light of organizational growth? Is alignment more about the internal operations of the organization? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think I, I'm not sure I, I would say that's true. I, I guess I feel like the, the extent to which the focus, the, op, the, the opportunity in the marketplace is defined by the customer ultimately. But ultimately, if you th start thinking about an expression of value proposition or brand, it's still, you know, there's this balance between the unmet customer need and the founders or the company's sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of always, I think, a little bit of a 50-50 operation yeah. with, you know, thinking about that as a kind of an external communication, if you will. Um, and then similarly, I think in terms of alignment, there's kind of a, there's kind of an outside in and an inside out view, I, I think. Meaning, you know, the alignment, the one version of alignment has to do with aligning the activities around the customer experience 
and trying to break down departmental silos, organizational momentum that has driven parts of the organization apart. So, you know, how marketing and sales interact and how product management and operations interact, mm -hmm. those kinds of things and, and, and looking at it through the customer's lens. But then on the other hand, there is definitely the kind of inside out operational excellence alignment, you know, trying to work toward using technologies and processes and human capital in a way that uh, can drive toward greater efficiencies. So it's kind of, it's kind of both, I think. Yeah. Ultimately. And then you, you know, you, um, yeah, I'm sorry. And I, I could talk on this. I could ask Kevin questions all day long, but uh, guys, anyone want to jump in with a question um, or any thoughts? If not, I'll just keep going, but feel free to interrupt us if, if you have any thoughts or questions. Um, Kevin, you mentioned uh, the book Jumping the S-Curve and going back to that idea of focus and alignment uh, at different stages of, your, of the organization's life cycle. Um, I guess I was curious to talk about, on the mature side, as you kind of are a, a more mature company, um, you know, maybe uh, your growth isn't as um, dynamic or it's flat, or maybe you're even in a little bit of decline. What, um, how might this change or does it not change? How much might your focus change when it comes to realigning with your current target audience or your current customer versus going after a new market in general? So maybe there's a new audience that you're trying to tackle. I mean, that, maybe that's more for you know, companies in decline that have to make a more severe jump. Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like in terms of the, I guess, maybe the severity or the height of the jump that you have to make? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I think, um, I think that, you know, the, the, a lot of the underpinnings of, of our work, as you well know, is uh, based on the idea that organizations sometimes meander away from their customers without you know, unwittingly, right. you know, they, they unwittingly meander away from their customers. And so part of the exercise from our standpoint is trying to better understand where the customer is today right. through research and understanding the context of decision-making macro trends, evolution of technology, things that are shaping the way they're even their current customer is thinking and, and making choices so that they can increase their relevance to that customer. And so in some ways, redefining, redefining the customer, um, redefining how we understand how we bring our products or services to market to them, I think is in and of itself is an innovation opportunity. Yeah. But then separately, I think that there are, you know, and, and you, I, I say separately, it's a separate solution, but a similar process can start to lead to, I think, brand new customers. So if you start to rethink the value proposition of an organization and how you're going to market using different language and solving the same problem differently, or perhaps even a different problem for that same customer, the more we dig into understanding the customer problem and how they make decisions and what they value, we can actually create brand new value propositions for that customer. It allows us to kind of expand the kind of target area. So in some reason, so on one hand, there's a, there's a reinvention of how we let's sort of, let's say repackage the current offering, but then there's another way to start thinking about either a new customer or a new offer itself. Right. That makes sense. 
anybody else want to kind of jump in there on, on that topic of uh, even just kind of focusing in on creating value propositions or uh, customer identifying customer value? So in your article, Kevin, you mentioned that, um, and, and we're kind of talking about there, but it's this interesting thing about uh, transitioning from a, for lack of a better phrase, a spark mindset versus a managing mindset. Um, and that's not always easy to do, right? So if I'm, you know, the guy who's, um, you know, leading the spark or starting that spark, that's probably, I think that's been successful for me for some period of time, right? And that's been working for me. But eventually I'm going to have to change over to that managing mindset. So there's a lot of things baked into that. And one of my questions was, are there, do you, do you believe that there are signals or signs or um, how do you know when to switch over from the spark mindset to the managing mindset? Yeah, I think, I think one of the, one of the key things, one of the key indicators, especially when it's a startup, a smaller company that's trying to grow is when everything seems to be, you have to rerun through the same person. Mm -hmm. So part of it is I think that when an organization starts, you know, there's, there's a few people wearing a lot of hats and um, that's by necessity, right? I mean, you've got, you've got a very small staff to begin with typically. Um, and you're just making decisions on the fly based on your understanding of the opportunity, the marketplace, what you need to do to reach your customer. Um, I think as an organization starts to scale, as you have some success, you start to scale and, you know, an individual can only scale so much, right? So it right. becomes kind of a question of, and so we, I think it's one of the symptoms, right? We'll see founders or the original team kind of running like a chicken with their head cut off because yeah. they, their every decision has to run through them. Every decision about marketing, every decision about sales, about product. Yeah. Um, which isn't to say that you should be, you should turn from being, having hands, your hands in everything to sort of hands off the wheel. Right. But I think that there is a, there's a level of self-awareness that needs to occur. And I think that other, so one symptom is uh, that everything seems to be run through one person. Another symptom I think is just overall team performance, whether there's, you know, whether a team is, uh, leaders are actually able to delegate um, and the self-awareness that needs to happen, I think, has to do with a better definition of what internal processes actually look like, which are derived from values. And so defining those values, which may be inherent in the founder's actions, but are not well articulated or communicated, um, becomes hard to scale. Um, one of our favorite models, as, as you well know, is the idea of um, we think about the sort of an abstraction letter around philosophy, principle, and practice, and the idea of you know separating the practice, which is to say what you do every day, versus principles that govern those actions, versus the underlying philosophy that drives everything. When you're a founder and you started something from scratch, all of those things are all mixed up together. The philosophy and the principles are all, and practices right. is, is all right. is all kind of balled up in one thing. As you start to scale and need to rely on other team members and actually align those actions and tools and processes, you need to sort of break those, just that decision making into various components and better understand what is the value system that's driving, a, you know, the driving philosophy, and how does that just 
how does that allow for principles and practices to emerge that are separate from from you? Uh, I think it has a lot to do with, as you mentioned a moment ago, even about uh, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. I was thinking about how it's, in some ways, it's the difference between the initial inertia and momentum. Sometimes your desire to keep pushing the, the original spark may actually prevent momentum from happening, the kind of momentum you need as you start to scale. How, how so? Well, I think that the, you know, the, and, and, and the, the other interesting analogy be about Steve Jobs and Tim Cook is that there's also Steve Jobs version one versus Steve Jobs version <laughs> right. two. So Steve yeah. Jobs, you know, <laughs> 2 he, 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 Steve Jobs 2.0 in some ways yeah. became, as has been well reported at this point, became kind of the more alignment oriented, growth oriented leader that Apple needed when he came back. Right. Um, compared to when he was first there, because he was he was much more, and I mentioned this even in the article too, about how, you know, the earlier Steve Jobs is a little bit like our current Mark Zuckerberg, you know, at Facebook, who talks about moving fast and breaking things. Yeah. I think that's a that's a that's a founder experimentation kind of mentality. Yeah. The trouble is if you go around moving fast and breaking things all the time, at some point, when an org when your organization needs more aligned teams and tools and processes and technologies. Yeah. You can't just keep breaking things or else you'll 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 gum up the works and there'll be no momentum. Yeah, yeah. So you, you end up breaking your team. <laughs> right. Do, do you think that so then on the flip side of that, you know, we talked about when do you need that kind of that spark? When do you know um, or when do you, you know how do you know when to switch be, between things? So let's say you know you've got your company up and running, it, and as you're kind of talking through that scenario about you know letting go versus you know not having everything run through you it's an interesting balance between how do you define the line between teaching and doing so, so, so delegating, but also, you know, you still do, I mean, you're the carrier, if you're, if you're the kind of the founder, you're the carrier of that spark. So you need to make sure that people are, um, that they also carry that, that same spark. Right. And you're also trying to get them aligned around a goal. But then when do you know as uh, less of a, from an organizational level, but more from an individual level, when do you know when you should back away and let them go? Because there's, there's a handoff there that needs to happen. So maybe talk a little bit about that handoff a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes, it actually, and, uh, and, and, I, and like many of us, I'm a parent and I, I feel like you know, not to be too yeah. kind of remedial about, the, but it, about this, but it, it does, it is interesting how it is kind of like you're trying to encourage you know the extent to which you function as a mentor and as a guide and as allowing someone else to grow there has to be on some level probably a willingness to allow others to fail mm -hmm. you know and yeah. the challenge is when you're the founder and your name's on the door or you started the company and it's, Does your, that mean it's, you it's, it's your money it's your yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. you don't want failure to exist on any level um, in fact, I mean, that kind of attitude of, you know, resisting failure is what allowed you to, um, you know, it, it, overcome it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Succeed. Um, and yet on some level, there needs to be a willingness to fail on smaller ways to allow others to grow. And I suppose that's, you know, that's the kind of, in some ways, the yeah. archetypical kind of mentor kind of model. I had a, uh, a boss early in my career who's had on his business card um, 
player slash coach. <laughs> <laughs> because it was kind of this question of like, there's always a coaching sort of mindset, I think, but also, you know, yeah. are, are you also a player on the team? Right. You know, like, and I probably at some point, the larger an organization gets, you can't also be a player and coach the team. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. And, and you, you know, kind of building on that, but in your article, you mentioned that leaders uh, can get stuck between gears uh, because they don't fully appreciate the need for that change. What do you think is, are some of the biggest causes for that lack of appreciation? Is it, you know, you mentioned in the, um, what was it, the founders? Yeah, the founders black found hole of despair. <laughs> it's exactly right. or, uh, but, found, Founders trap. Yeah. yeah, so so I mean, you kind of mentioned some of the things in there. Is it, is it about ego? Is it about fear, uh, trust, self-awareness? Maybe a blend of those things, but you know, kind of reflecting on you know your own journey, but also sure. the the work that we've done with clients. Mm -hmm. Where do you see um, people kind of? Why do you think there is that that lack of appreciation? I think you know what I what I suspect, and I you know, I, I sense this through the client work. As you say, I think in terms of our you know our own small company, I think that the uh, I think. Sometimes a founder isn't always exactly sure of the source of their success. And that when you start getting some traction and some success, there's a risk of you starting to feel like, you know, you're making all the decisions and you're somewhat infallible. Right. And I think that there's kind of a, and so you're, you're imagining that whatever, whatever meth methods you use to uh, succeed up until that point, are going to bring you on into the future. And I think that that's just not the case. I think it's sort of the, you know, the, the best leaders that I have, you know, have a, had, the, had the privilege of been working with on the client side and people I've seen that have really matured their own kind of outlook, I think have, a, have an acute sense of how they need to engage when they need to engage. I mean, so on some level, it's a, I suppose it's an exercise in, in leadership in a more straightforward fashion. And the idea that understanding what the business needs at any given time is something that is a is a, is an actual skill set that I think that the more experienced leaders that I've been able to work with, um, I think they have, they, have they, a sense for they understand that. Yeah. Having having worked with people who in you know the same person in different companies working at different states of those companies and yeah. being able to sort of attune their, you know, what what is actually needed at that time. Which, which just means that there's both a self-awareness as to what their role is, but also an acute awareness of the state of the business itself. Well, and also they seem to, um, they're very confident in what they know and they're very comfortable with what they don't know. Right. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and um, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the snobbery curve that we talk about <laughs> here where um, the snobbery curve is essentially, you know, as you learn more or uh, start to learn something more, there's a point where you feel very inflated, like you know it all, and you can't wait to tell people how they're doing it wrong or how they should do it better. You know, but as you kind of come over that curve, you're very much more comfortable in your own skin to some degree, and it's actually about pulling people in and welcoming people in and letting go of some of those things. It's interesting to think about just that, um, that blend of humility and confidence in, uh, in being able to navigate and identify those, those needed areas of growth. Yeah, that is a that's a that's a wonderful model. That it's actually started from we had done work in um, the food and beverage industry around you know craft 
beer and, and in our minds the idea of craft coffee and all kinds of other craft kind of services um, led to kind of this sort of sense of like where does the snobbery exist yeah. but we've 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 extrapolated on that idea and it becomes part of our everyday vocabulary uh, at people design about where are people on their snobbery curve <laughs> <laughs> yeah what um so so um kind of pulling back to to focus and alignment and just kind of the growth in general so i guess maybe i could pause there too and say uh, anybody want to jump in with questions again? Like, I, you know, we can rattle on all day long. <laughs> yeah. Anybody? Want to make sure you guys are having an opportunity to jump in there. Yeah. People haven't hung up yet, so at least they're. Who's <laughs> your? Either you can either, send a hate mail or. You, yeah. Either you know, either you're driving and you're and you can't turn off. Or the phone you just fall asleep right, exactly. right away. <laughs> um, Fair enough. So so you know when uh, when you're in a startup or maturity phase and you're trying to uh, identify that focus, there's a lot of different things that you can focus on, you know, so for a startup, you know, one of the things that we've seen with working with startups is they don't want to limit their opportunity, right? And then it's like, well, this is working over there and that's working over there. And maybe there's something here and let's just do them all. On a, from a mature uh, company perspective, you can, uh, you know, you can double down on your current customers that we're talking about. You might be, you could explore new markets and new audiences. Um, there's a lot of different things that you could create focus on how should an organization go about determining what to focus on yeah so we uh, as you well know we uh, the process that we employ around finding focus uh is is based on the idea that any organization is built on an unmet need uh in the marketplace and i think that that sounds in some ways obvious and maybe throwaway, but I think that the reality is that most organizations that have existed um, and that have been matured in the last 50 or even 100 years are, have been primarily focused on optimizing uh, a kind of business uh, where there are like competitors and yeah. all of those competitors kind of behave in similar ways. And I think that we are, because of technology change, because of globalization, because of a lot of other factors, um, customers of all in all markets are starting to um, have very different kinds of choices available. So even even in industries, as we have noticed, that are uh, that have his historically had a relative monopoly based on geography. So higher education, hospitals, banks especially those kinds of institutions, but truly even more so a lot of other organizations that are less geographically focused that have had other kinds of kind of a sense of monopoly uh, in a space has all changed quite a bit because of technology innovators and um, other kinds of, you know, let's say imports and other kinds of, you know, uh, kinds of products and services that are, that, are, uh, that have emerged under the scene. I mean, Certainly, I mean, if you've ever used the phrase, the Uber of whatever, um, you know, it's, it's becoming just a way in which we understand how markets are increasingly being disrupted. Um, and so, you know, it forces organizations to rethink what their focus is. I think that organizations have felt fairly focused, but mostly it's been about chasing competitors or swimming with the rest of the, the right. fish in your market. Right. Whereas I think that, you know, what has happened often, as I mentioned earlier, is that the customers sometimes are, have kind of wandered away from where the market is. And while the market behaves in a particular way, it's increasingly less relevant to the customer. So the idea of finding a focus or a refreshed focus or a new focus 
is very much about trying to understand where the customers today, where the potential new customers may come from in the future. Yeah. Um, and then orienting your business, aligning your, your business, your teams, your technologies and so on in such a way to, to go after that, that future concept. So once you've kind of achieved your focus and you say, okay, this is going to be our North star. This is going to be the market that we're tackling. This is where we want to go. And you switch over to you. You've had some success. Things are going well. You need to switch over to that managing mindset, that alignment mindset. What do you see as some of the bigger hurdles in achieving alignment or creating alignment? Yeah, I think, I think that the, uh, we have some ideas that you and I certainly yeah. have talked about at some length. The, the, there are, um, I think internal, the internal team dynamics becomes uh, kind of a critical issue. And what I mean by that is there's both, I think there's institutional momentum, there's market momentum for in organizations to behave certain ways. And then on top of that, there are practitioners um, who are all focused on best practices. So IT is focused on their best practices and salespeople are focused on their best practices and operational excellence people are focused on their best practices. And the challenge is, and, and usually those best practices are rooted in those particular um, kind of uh, sort of schools of thought and, and also layered into what layers in it is kind of the, um, the particular market that you happen to be in where everybody in operations in a particular category operates in a particular way. Uh, and I think that if you start to look at sort of more disruptive innovators, they ignore all of those things, right? They're looking at it from a customer problem standpoint and starting to orient. So certainly the ideas of starting to, um, Think about it from an outside-in perspective. Think about it from a customer journey perspective, as opposed to um, an internal, you know, who owns what. You mm -hmm. know, it almost, you know, from the customer doesn't. Ultimately, the customer doesn't care how that interaction. They're not going to distinguish it between if it's an operational issue exactly. or a marketing issue, or whatever. They just know at some point exactly the experience was terrible. That's right. So I feel like the just overlaying you know if there was a greater like as a starting place a greater awareness even internally as to in what ways the action that i'm performing on behalf of this company affects the customer yeah. i think especially in a larger organization people that are deeply in the bowels of some organization you know they don't have any clue as to how what they're doing is affecting the customer and the truth is nearly everything does i mean the extent to which you know any organization is like a it's like a living thing, you know, there's, yeah. there's a circulatory system and there's kind of, yeah. there's, there's a delivery mechanism and at some point it's somewhere it's affecting the customer. Yeah. And I think that that ultimately is paramount. You know, and one, one of the things that made me think about this idea uh, in the whole interaction design world, a uh, hot button phrase or a trending phrase has been the idea of agency. Hmm. Talk a little bit about the, what that means and, and cause it kind of goes back to philosophy principles and practice, mm -hmm. but it also, it, I mean, it's, it's the idea of agency, philosophy, principles, practice. I think it's also interesting to think about, you know, how do we define our, the value that we as individuals bring to an organization? And do we define ourselves by the title and the activity that we do? Or is there some level of that, you know, so on a, on a practices level, mm -hmm. but if you abstract that up, mm -hmm. what is the value that you're really bringing to the organization? And so this idea of agency can have a couple different outputs, right? So on one hand, it can be about the, um, 
the actual physical task that you're doing and what is the output of that. And each decision I make can have a ripple effect, effect down the stream uh, for the customer. The, the other side is, is perhaps more internal, which have, will eventually get to the customer. But it's this notion of if I define myself as a, um, and I define my value as a task master, then does that limit, or, or do, I, do I look at it as, do I define myself as someone who turns chaos into organization? Mm -hmm. And when I start to change that identity or that, that value, when I abstract it up to philosophy or, or principles, it can change the way that I think about my agency and the way that I can impact my organization, no matter where you're at in, your, in the in the org chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting idea. I I feel like the um, this concept of agency, in part, has emerged out of um, idea, you know descriptions about user experience, and more recently right. the idea of ethics, actually, in in business and so on, and what agency does someone have. You know, versus you know this sort of sense of a, how much autonomy do they have? You know, how much ability do they have control over their actions? I actually think that you know, and Jake, as you well know, we you know we focus a lot in our and people design um, this idea of focus and alignment. You know, an analogous way to think about it is you know meaning and experience. So we right. talk about meaningful experiences, and I actually feel like the you know as we emerge into a new era, what's one of the critical uh, issues about meaningful experiences. And I think those meaningful experiences happen internally and they happen externally. Yeah. Um, the idea of agency is really is about control, you know, so user right. controls, how much agency does a user have? How much, how much freedom do they have to make certain choices and how much is the right amount? Right. And similarly internally. And I think about it in terms of the evolution of a, of moving from kind of a startup to a growth to a mature company leaders have to decide how much agency to give their staff ultimately. And I, and, it, and, I, and I don't think that the answer, just like, you know, in terms of like the number of choices, the answer isn't more choices, you know, more agency is always better. Um, and right. also similarly, it isn't always that all more choices is, is always better because there's a, there's a paradox of choice. And similarly with agency, you know, you have too, too much freedom. There's, there's, you know, it can create more anxiety. So, I, I think these there's an emerging vocabulary I think in the experience economy around you know time you know liminal thinking how people make decisions and how much you know things like user control agency yeah. are, are are parts of what kind of let's say an emerging vocabulary and, and it makes me think about where you structure alignment you know and how might you private so there's a lot of different things that you can look at when, when you get to that place of creating alignment, you can look at activities and tasks. You can look at your offer or service or objects. You can look at roles and benefits and um, ultimately mindsets. Where do you see the priority being and what do you start to tackle first? Or are there combinations of things that you would link together uh, in terms of creating alignment in a systematic fashion? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think, um... Maybe it's different per, per, yeah. per organization. Pro know. Probably, I definitely feel like it's, you know, it gets into the, you know, the work you and I have been doing yeah. on um, decision-making and how change happens, how behavioral changes happen and changing the mindset and then start getting into cues and all of the things about how you start. And I, th I think starting to think about, you know, culture shifts ultimately. Um, and shift in mindset is the first step for sure, but then it starts yeah. to inform 
you know, your sort of actions and how you react into your skills and then ultimately a culture change. So I think it's a, it's, it's an individualized thing for sure. But I think starting to think about, you know, the ideas around habit formation, what kinds of patterns, um, so much of it is, you know, self-awareness and understanding like, what is that shift of mindset? What is happening today? So we can try to envision what tomorrow looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all the questions I have. Anybody else want to jump in with, uh, with a question for, for Kevin? I have a question if you guys can hear me. Can you hear me? All right, absolutely, okay. please do. So as I was listening, you know, there's a couple of things that, that pop up, at least for the way our business is run. You talk about user experience and the customer. Sometimes those aren't the same people. Right, right. Yeah, it, yeah, go ahead. So it's, it's, it, it just, when you said user experience, it made me go, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> We're focusing on the customer experience and, you know, how do you, how do you serve both, right? The user and the customer knowing that they're different, they're different people and they have different needs. And, and, you know, I think one of the things earlier, I, I couldn't jump on that you're talking about how companies grow, um, through the growth mindset or through just the, the natural growth of a company, you start to add people. And, and you talk about this, the founders, they've got the, the vision and, and it's just inherent in them, in them. It's in the DNA. And as you add people, when the company's small, you're adding people who believe in the same DNA because you work together, you wear so many hats, you're rolling up your sleeves together. You're doing things that aren't maybe in your job description. Um, one of the things I see is, is as you add more people, the DNA starts to, to change a little bit. That's a challenge in itself. But the biggest thing goes to getting people to know who the customer is and that experience. You know, the, you made a comment, we need to build greater awareness of how they affect the customer. That's the challenge. But then you threw, threw in this, this bomb after that saying the user <laughs> experience. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just interesting and I don't know that I have a question here, but you know, uh, it's more of a comment that there's a lot of dynamics here as you add more people within the organization, it's harder to drill down to, Hey, who are we focusing on and how do we focus on both? How do you serve two, two customers? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, no, that, that's actually, that's a really good question. And it's funny because I, I, you know, to, in a, to be perfectly frank, we are we are ever challenged actually in our own materials and our own discussion when we, when we talk about our work with with our customers um using the word user versus customer and and the reason why from our perspective is that you know there is a um there's kind of a marketing lens let's say and there's kind of a design lens um you know, we, we at our core ultimately are, are a design firm, which is to say we're trying to solve human-centered problems. To me, customers and users are somewhat interchangeable. Now, I understand the, the distinction you're making because there's a different kind of a customer or a different kind of a user based on, am I the one who's actually using the product? Am I the specifier? Am I the one writing the check? Right? I mean, there's a lot of different, but you could also, I think that you can, you know, that if you start to, diagram out the various uh, constituents in your value map. There's also dealers or representatives or salespeople or internal staff, customer service 
people. All of these people are various, let's say, stakeholders or users or, and customers of, of, of a sort. And again, not to muddy the waters. I think that it's, it, it's useful to recognize, and this is why, you know, exercises around, you know, value maps and understanding what is the exchange of value, the flow of value between different individuals or organizations, so we can understand what is the, what is the ultimate aim here. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of our methodology is, has been informed by, uh, ideas around user-centered product design and applying those principles to business. So in some ways, the broader kind of design thinking movement that exists in the marketplace that has been wholly adopted by many in the business community is, is really that sort of mentality. So the idea in some ways, and the, and, the, and the reason in part is that there are some limits to looking at markets, you know, because markets are, uh, are, are in some ways backward looking and some of the changes that we were talking about earlier aren't necessarily reflective of what, you know, what the market did in the past is not necessarily what the market is going to be in the future. So if you look at the market, you know, you might've been, you know, Borders book, bookseller, looking at the bookseller market, it'd be really hard to anticipate Amazon. Of course, it's easy to look at, you know, hindsight is 2020 perhaps, but I think it's one of these questions of, you know, trying to look out into the future. You're looking at it from a, it, they may be customers, but there's there's larger, let's say, constellation of people out there and their interactions. And, and so if you start looking at it from a user-centered methodology, it allows you to understand the exchanges of value between those users and that some of them may become customers, which is to say they write you a check at some point. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. And it's, <laughs> uh, you know, for our industry, our you could argue our customer is the dealer, but that's not the user. And right. so that's where you have to distinguish the difference of who, who do you serve and, and who in our organization, for instance, um, the journey we'll be going on is know your user and your customer and which right. one do you serve. Yes. Right? Yeah. That's where the value map comes into play. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, and, it, and it's a very interesting thing because I, we actually, um, it's, it's become a little bit of a joke for us. Sometimes uh, we'll walk into an, a company and nearly every company we, we talk to, one of the first things they say is like, you know, our market, it is so complicated. We have so many, you know, it's like, and, it's, and, it, and I'm not saying that it's not, but it is definitely nearly every marketplace has some unique dynamics. And I think the choice, for example, as you mentioned, the choice of saying, our customer, our primary customer is the dealer and not, let's say, the end customer. That's a strategic choice, right? I mean, it kind of, it's kind of a, and there are different ways to sort of slice this. We, For sure. It, you know what I mean? It's one of the, they're, 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 we, you know, one of the biggest innovations, we helped a, a, a very large B2B, you know, manufacturing company in a totally different marketplace than yours, um, you know, really move away from that model, frankly, right? So like they're, they're basically that, you know, they were very, um, in some ways myopic because they were only focused on kind of the customer that was directly in front of them. And what we tried to help them see is the opportunity of creating more pull through toward the customer that was three customers down the line, if you will, mm -hmm. which to them seemed like that's, you know, like we don't even deal with those guys, yeah. but it's like, but the truth is if you're telling a story about relevance, if you can be relevant to the next person down the line in your value chain, it can help pull 
create pull through ultimately from the and this was unique yeah. to that particular marketplace well, and all but, the rest. but on that you know i think one one of the things that we talk about too is this idea of transparency and i what one of the things that we've seen across all industries is that you know just obviously we live in an information age and the internet's everywhere and everyone can find anything about anyone that organizations who are uh, historically very high in the supply chain um, and never really saw the end user are being put in front of end users right. or at least yeah. further down like you can't um, you can't be invisible anymore yeah and and <laughs> yeah. then and then the buyer also who's still not the user is used to using and buying things on Amazon or using Google to search things and finding it. So their expectations are also much greater than what, um, what they were even, you know, five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I, I commonly make the joke. I, I feel like early in my career, I used to meet salespeople that literally had multiple business cards and they could be a healthcare specialist on one day and be a higher ed specialist on the second, on the next day. And then and of course the reality is it's all, you know, everybody wants to find out about your company in a limited number of pixels that fits on your phone. Yeah, it's just a just a you know because you know customers are, are, will expect be able to find answers. That's just kind of a Google search away, which forces you to have a, a have your story straight. You can't. Yeah. It's harder to be anonymous. And so the the company I was talking about, for example, is you know I think they were you know they they've existed happily for fifty years, being kind of anonymously in, in the value chain. Yeah. But increasingly, that you know, that doesn't help them. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Thanks for that, by the way. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So, it, if there are no other questions, um, so first of all, thank you very much for for listening to us. I hope this was helpful. Um, Jake and I collaborate on these kinds of things all the time and um, many of you who are on the phone uh, we have worked with or may work with in the future. Uh, so thank you very much for listening and if you like this kind of information or discussions like these, uh, please subscribe to our newsletter. You can go to peopledesign.com slash subscribe. Um, you can also find us of course in all the usual places in social media and if you can find out more about People Design itself, our organization at peopledesign.com.